You are listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey & Company. I am Oliver Tonby, your host and chairman of McKinsey Asia. In this series, we feature leaders from across the region to discuss the forces, the opportunities, and the challenges that are shaping the future of Asia. Welcome, everyone, to the Future of Asia podcast series. Today's topic is the evolution of healthcare in Asia, uh, given the technology revolution that we have happening. I am joined by three distinguished guests today. I am joined by Jessica Tan, the group co-CEO of Ping An. I am joined by uh, Dr. Shrey Varana, the CEO of IMED Radiology Network. And finally, I am joined by Dr. Axel Bauer. Axel Bauer is a senior partner with McKinsey & Company in Hong Kong and leads our healthcare practice across Asia. Welcome to all three of you. Before we get into the content, I think I would love to hear, Jessica, can you explain what is Ping An in the context of healthcare? I think we all know Ping An as a huge technology behemoth, if I'm allowed to call it that. But explain a little bit what Ping An does in the healthcare sector, if you don't mind. Yeah. So we aspire to basically do two things. One is uh, we believe that healthcare services is a critical and differentiating part of our insurance. So we bundle our insurance and healthcare services together. And I think the second thing is that we also believe and are is one, is one of the largest online healthcare provider. And we believe that this digitization of healthcare services is one that will come and you know, we would like to be one of the leading players in this area. Got it. Shrey, perhaps you would, there's two words on what is IMED? IMED is a technology-based diagnostic imaging business. It's the third largest corporate radiology diagnostic business globally. And we have a strong view that this is at the heart of driving improved clinical outcomes and, and improving access to lower quality, I mean, higher quality, but low cost care. Perfect. Thank you. So now with that, let's uh, dig in. Let's start and talk about the digital pivot that we see happening in healthcare and healthcare ecosystems across Asia, and perhaps get a little bit of a snapshot from respective countries. Why don't we start with you and uh, China, Jessica? Sure. The healthcare ecosystem in China is about 6 trillion yuan uh, right now, right? with the aging population, with increasing affluence and spending, therefore, on healthcare, it should be expected to get to 16 trillion yuan by 2030. Right? So this is definitely a very important. And of course, with China also pushing out healthy 2030, this is one of the key components of increase for China. I think what is then within this um, ecosystem, if you break it down, it is still in three parts, right? If you look at it from a you know, typical patient, provider, and payer uh, landscape standpoint, you know, you're really looking at 1.4 billion people, you know, with the aging population, we have now over 200 million, they are above 60 years old, and that number will ra is rapidly increasing. In some of the cities, you can get aging rates of 20 to 25% already. So that rate is going to increase significantly. The spending, of course, is also going to increase a lot more as the affluent and mass affluent type people would like to spend more on it. Uh, now, the percentage of digital online healthcare by spending last year due to COVID is about 
right? But that percentage is expected to increase to 20, 25%, depending on who you ask, right? But this is definitely a trend that's really happening within the consumer front. Within the provider front, China is one whereby 85% of all the healthcare services delivered through the public healthcare system. There is, and some of the, from the challenges that you see here, essentially are there is a, a lack of Doctors and nurses, there's only 3.8 million doctors, 4.4 million nurses for a population of 1.4 billion. Right? So depending on what estimate you would like, there's a shortage easily, you know, 700,000 doctors, easily another few million of nurses that you need, right? Particularly as you talk about aging population, you need more kind of nursing care. So there is a scarcity of these uh, healthcare resources, and most of them are still in the public healthcare sector, which becomes more difficult, I think, to remunerate. Uh, them properly, and then also kind of generate good service in the more virtuous uh, cycle. And then I think finally on the third part of the landscape on the payer front, you're looking in China, whereby I think 55% or so is paid for by the government through the social health insurance fund. Uh, while you know generally compared to other countries, it's actually you know still quite well funded, but the speed of expenditure is increasing at 12% per year versus the speed of income coming in the social health insurance at 10% a year. So, so eventually, this social health insurance aspect will need to decrease, right, to give rise more to actually commercial insurance. I think this is also why, Peng An, as, as I said, you know, we have over 200 million financial services customers, 600 million internet users. This is why we believe healthcare is a huge opportunity for us. Commercial insurance today in China only represents 6-7% of the uh, payment. This is a potential to grow up much more to complement the social health insurance so that you can relieve the burden of the out-of-pocket expenditure. Thank you. So huge market, growing fast, changing, very dynamic market as well. Shrey, can you give a little bit of a flavor for other markets across Asia? And then we'll a little bit later, we'll contrast to the rest of the world. But let's focus on Asia for now, if you don't mind. Sure. And I assume I'm going to include Australia as a landscape within that. We have a next Australia. I'm not allowed to use such words these days. But yes, uh, Australia is part of, of Asia for our conversation. Sure. And I think it's a, it's a very good framing, Oliver, when you say countries within Asia, because I think people often put the region together and describe it as one environment. And those of us who work in the space can clearly acknowledge that you have to look at this on a country by country basis. Within that, I would separate out you know, markets that are incredibly well-funded, Singapore, Australia with the, as examples of that, where also the health outcomes are actually quite compelling by global standards. And the nature of the challenges would tend to be around aged care, with it oncology, with it chronic disease, versus other parts of the region where you'd look at it, and there are challenges similar to what Jessica alluded to around accessibility to human resources and health, and with that ability to provide care on, on other dimensions, including much more of your viral-based or, or other acute diseases. So different challenges in each of these markets, different funding opportunities, and definitely very different provider landscapes, whether that's within the hospital space or within the diagnostic imaging or pathology space. If I look at Australia specifically, and then I compare that to most of the first world countries that I've worked in, impressively funded health system, and as a result, on most levels of morbidity and mortality, really good outcomes. If anything, I would say the opportunity rather than the challenge is as you look at this aging population and look at some of the disease burden that that presents, how do they think ahead and avoid some of the challenges that we've seen, for example, in Europe? 
where healthcare has become unaffordable. And I think that's really the opportunity if they look ahead at technology at consumer-focused or consumer-driven healthcare to go, how do we drive innovation ahead of the curve, particularly using technology, so that you avoid this position where, you know, as a percentage of GDP, it's actually unsustainable in the long term. Got it. And perhaps we can also pivot to a couple of the other regions across Asia. I don't know, Axel, if you want to complement that. I think I would just, before we talk about the other regions, stress maybe a point that Jessica made. And that is, if you look into what the emerging digital health ecosystems are doing across Asia, they are actually focusing heavily on expanding or allowing for access. Because in, if you compare any other system, uh, be it in Euro, US or in Europe, access to healthcare is not really a barrier. But if you go into, into China or India or, or Southeast Asia more broadly, and just look at the numbers, OECD numbers, when it comes to doctor or nursing um, numbers, Asia is just far behind. And the population doesn't have access. So digital health is a mean to really open up the funnel in a way that all of a sudden, not 10%, but 60, 80% of the population get access because of the vast penetration of today's mobile devices. And I think this is the big leapfrog that we have been seeing in Asia. If you then look into other parts of the world, I mean, obviously access in Europe or in the US is not so much of an issue. We don't, don't see or haven't seen until COVID any kind of adoption levels that we have seen in, in Asia. I mean, very much driven by doctors and other associations that are trying to protect their today's stake. And only through COVID, we have seen a small increase of the use of digital health in getting access to healthcare by avoiding the classical offline kind of visit to, to the doctor. The U.S. has always been ahead, you, but I would argue that many of the, the U.S. solutions that we are seeing in digital health are very much driven and designed around the, the very specificities of the U.S. healthcare system and are not so much transferable into the, the Asian market. So Europe and at least in the way I've seen it, and Trey, you've obviously had experience through through your previous work, is not so far ahead in digital health. I would argue that Asia is the furthest. And if you look into Asia, I would even say that China is ahead, India close second, and then Indonesia. And yes, you've said you've mentioned Australia, but Australia, I think, is only slowly catching up to the three countries I've mentioned. So, Shrey, I was going to ask you, Shrey, you know, you agree with this or any nuances to it? I agree. I, I was going to, Axel went really heavy into the framing around digital, but then he also referenced offline. And, and I think he, he and I maybe share the same view that this is an offline, online trajectory. I completely agree that COVID, I mean, if we have to talk about one good thing that's come out of it is the world has much more rapidly taken on the opportunities that digital and technology presents that we've seen in other industries. And if you look at retail, if you look at banking, they've been well ahead of healthcare. And I think we often fall behind because of an appropriately conservative focus on our clinical outcomes and our patient well-being. And in the developed countries, I think particularly for me seeing it in Europe, it has been, it stood out over the last 12 to 24 months. I think the point on access is critical. And that's why we've not had 
the luxury of many of the developed countries in, you know, whether we're talking India, China, Indonesia, where it's, it's forced innovation in a way that's good for the rest of the world. I'll just want to add, Oliver, as well. I think China is a bit different, I think, for Indonesia. Actually, access is not a huge problem, right? Actually, China has done a remarkable job, particularly in the past five plus years, in even providing access to doctors in the remote areas, right, as part of their poverty alleviation. So basic healthcare access is actually not a uh, not an issue. Yeah, you have a million institutions. Uh, I think the point about, so it's a bit different from Indonesia, which I think the kind of accessibility is much less. But that being said, the digitization aspect is still increasing. I think it's not digitization in China happening. It's not actually for access. It's actually much more to access to hopefully eventually to experts, to the top tier guys. So one of the things that we are doing, for example, on Good Doctor right now, we signed up, we have our own 2,200 doctors. That's, those are much more for convenience sake, right? Instead of going, as I mentioned, to the public healthcare institutions, which maybe perhaps have long waiting times. You still see a doctor, it's just less convenient. In addition to the 2,000 doctors we have, we also signed up now with the top 100 hospitals and the top kind of specialists within the country, right? Which then aspect, because these are uneven resources, across the country is a big country that you could, you know, instead of traveling, even in Shenzhen, I don't get as top specialists as someone in Beijing or, or Shanghai that you can actually access to these top tier doctors. So I think the motivation for the online is slightly different, you know, but nonetheless, it is indeed, as Axel said, one of the, I think, the leading countries in terms of adoption uh, here. Asia's standing in the world has changed. And it's clear that where the focus once was on how quickly the region would rise, the reality is now all about how Asia will lead. Keep listening to the Future of Asia podcast. So let's dig deeper into this. I think you guys have already started touching on this, but I would love to hear even more examples of how technology, how digital is helping, whether it is around affordability or accessibility. would love, we see in other industries that we're talking about digitizing the buying channels. We see increasing consumer-centric ecosystems. We see digitizing the value chains. So if you could give some examples from your respective sectors and countries, who wants to go first, Trey? Sure, happy to. I'll give you three examples. And as you said, you're happy to uh, flesh it out. I think first, if I think back to the program I've been involved in, which is now probably in 20 odd countries, which is Vitality, we used effectively a technology and a digitally based platform to shift chronic disease and cancer screening to the point where on a risk adjusted basis, we could diagnose cancer one stage earlier. And on chronic diseases, typically your three big ones, which is hypercholesterolemia, hypertension and diabetes, you could fundamentally shift outcomes at an actuarially measured level to show that you're bringing down the cost of care, but also clinical outcomes. And that entire platform or program, as you you would describe it now, I think it touches probably in excess of 20 million people around the world, is driven through a technology interface, which is your phone. There's a a way in which you're engaging with your patient, and I'd even use the word customer, on a regular basis where you're pushing information to them and using behavioral science and various nudges to get them to actively participate in in screening and earlier diagnosis. And then the follow-up interventions, including various incentives and nudges, all again through a digital platform to shift clinical outcomes 
from a patient point of view or consumer point of view, it is consumer centric. So it may be experienced through the marketing message, but at a clinical level, it's completely about how we're shifting the curbs in terms of mobility and mortality. And when you see some of the published data in terms of clinical outcomes, it's phenomenal. The second for me on a very different market, if I had to look at India and some of the work we're doing with Max Hospital Group there when Life owned it, we looked at how we use technology to take healthcare to the patient's home. So remote monitoring devices, real-time monitoring, continuous data flows. And I think while we've spoken, Oliver, about access and Jessica alluded to it, I think this is about access to better quality care. And so that's a great example because part of the ability of using, when we talk a lot about digital and tech, is I think we're under also appreciating the importance of the data flows we're now getting, which allows us to do far better long-term understanding of disease profiles and far better management of clinical outcomes. So with Max, which is one of the larger hospital groups in the northern parts of India, we built a completely technology-based program that allowed us to have our patients at home and continuous monitoring, access to doctors, access to nurses through both the combination of the devices in situ at their houses with access to the the nursing and the clinical staff as doctors who are still available to them. And then at the other end of it, if I look at IMED and uh, Australia as a more first world example, we've completely re-engineered the patient journey from the moment they leave a, a referring doctor's rooms to where we can push message them arrange online scheduling that's more convenient to them, if you think customer centricity. So based on when they'd like an appointment or the closeness to them. So from a convenience point of view, you can do complete online scheduling and booking, which allows us to also at the back end optimize our system from a provision point of view and cost point of view. And at the same time, makes the patient journey completely digital through to the moment they've seen their radiologist and have their scans. We can then push notification to them as to when the report will be ready and through to so so completely evolved the patient's journey. What it does is it also allows us to at scale provide care in environments where we physically weren't able to previously, for example, remote or outline areas. At the same time, if I come back to balancing digital and tech with data, we're also looking at the role of machine learning, AI, how we're thinking about you know feeding these massive data sets and from it starting to get better clinical outcome predictability where we can supplement the the doctor or the human with what we know some of these large-scale analytical engines can provide. So we're already seeing double-digit improvements in measuring for quality. Got it. Axel, what are some of the interesting things that you see across the region? I think I would start off with adding to what um, Trey said around AI-based therapeutic support, where I think it starts off with where you left off with the imaging, where you basically through AI can up to now probably reduce 93% of the radiologist interactions by reading MRI CTs through AI-based diagnostic imaging analyses. You can use this in early avatar-like settings when you when an individual calls up either a good doctor or goes into a minute window of Ping'an or calls somebody else like in Apollo 24-7 where you can actually virtually triage individuals by having AI-based natural language processing that really allows just a very efficient way of treating the individuals. I think then just to build, to come back to our online, offline discussion, what I see a lot across multiple geographies, especially here in Asia, is to connect the primary care 
as well as the pharmacy ecosystem together through a online support where you would be calling up a, a hotline, a, an Apollo 24-7 or a Pingan doctor. You would get a virtual consult either through a, an online physician. And I think what the new and improved system now is in the value chain, would you would get a prescription, even an RX prescription. And this prescription would then be serviced, supplied from an offline pharmacy and would be delivered by a last mile delivery service to the patient. So you basically decouple the necessary offline visit of a, of a patient with its doctor and the visit to the pharmacy by an online offline continuum. And this, I think, is one of the big things that we have been seeing across many geographies evolving. I think the last thing I would mention is really the use of behavioral, economic and social data in order to predict and prevent illnesses, which I think is one of the maybe not the holy grail, but one of the big themes for healthcare systems to avoid the ever-increasing costs in a healthcare system and just start bending the cost curve only with social, economic, and behavioral data and medical data. And using this to predict, you can really direct individuals, consumer to hopefully a healthier and a better life and a longer life. And by doing so, avoid costs for a healthcare system more broadly. And, and I think the usage of this data is done by companies, I mean, to, to mention Ping An, but also Tencent and Ali Health, but many other players across Asia. Jessica, we heard Axel allude to, uh, to Good Doctor. Good Doctor is part of Ping An's group or the ecosystem. Would you care just to say what is good? A couple of interesting examples of what Good Doctor is up to. Sure. And I'll also answer kind of what we're using technology and healthcare on. I think one, there's two main kind of pillars that we're pushing through technology usage across healthcare. I think one is through Good Doctor, right? And the idea really is that we want to be the kind of go-to portal, right, for consumers, be it for health management, simple diagnostics, chronic disease management that Shri was talking about, you know, as well as kind of specialist type of services that Axel was saying may not be me diagnosed or pre- kind of consultation online, but then really linked to an offline network. And then actually the fifth one is around elderly home care. Right? Uh, so what the doctor really do is we use technology on all these five aspects on how you would digitize and be able to deliver as much of it as possible, either online, right? Or at least be the portal uh, online. So some of the things that you know we've had a lot of success with, let's say skin disease, right? You realize actually skin is one, whereby we're doing extremely well is one of our top consultation because it, it's something that you can take a picture, right? Actually, we now cover about 65% of all the possible uh, problems. We've trained enough images because we have a few tens of thousands uh, every day of these images. At first, the doctors will see it. And after that, we train our machines to be able to do it. And it's something also one whereby it's quite private. They, uh, no patients want privacy on this. They may not want to immediately go to a specialist dermatologist to look at it. Right? So this is one whereby we've been able actually to take about 65% really being able to digitize online. Right? To chronic disease management, like what Shri was saying, uh, we're, we now cover, I think, about over 3, 4 million chronic disease patients on our platform, right? including covering basically diabetes, hypertension, COPD, and others that ranges from what Shri was describing from early kind of detection, right? Because a lot of the problems actually 
a third of the people doesn't even know that they have early signs. So we have models based on their own personal health, as well as their living conditions and their kind of lifestyle factors to identify a risk model. So then those then, how do you control that? So if you have to follow as part of our insurance plan, we cover that, but you have to follow our online app so that you actually adhere because it's a lot about uh, lifestyle management control. And if you're on this program for about three months or so, you find that actually the adherence rate to all these various ratios improve from 41% to 80, 85%. Right? Uh, so it basically is one of the cycle whereby both Free and Excel was talking about through these technology data analytics, not only we make this possible online, but we actually can help the consumer better manage their health, which of course they're happy. We're also happy because they can reduce costs and get better. So I think that's one string of thought that we've been doing, including, I think, you know, elderly home care and stuff that we're experimenting with. But the second aspect that we are pushing through on technology and healthcare is much more than how do you enable, because I'm not going to be able to suddenly magically create another million doctors or a few million nurses, right? So how do you use technology actually to improve their capability, their productivity and coverage? So, and empowering the whole healthcare network, including the public healthcare network. So we have another unit actually called Smart Healthcare, you know, system uh, within our smart city that we work with the Ministry of Health equivalent in China. And we now cover about, I think at last count, 250,000 healthcare institutions, including hospitals, community hospitals and stuff, and about 750,000 doctors. So we're gradually covering that so that they actually use our diagnostics tool, right? And it covers not just the radiology, the diagnostics, AI, medical imaging, which is relatively more straightforward, but even in the diagnostics, right? So we have trained something called an ASPA, you know, that for the past kind of uh, five to seven years, we basically read through 30,000 different diseases, all the different clinical pathway of how you, what's the right thing to diagnose, how do you actually treat different plans and stuff. Uh, so that it becomes something that the doctors can use as a clinical decision support system to do this, right? And we have 750,000 doctors using it. And you can find that adherence rate improved dramatically, right? Uh, that they're actually treating what they're not, then it would reduce the chance of misdiagnostics or reduce the chance of over-medication, right? Because due to the inexperience, you know, of various doctors, physicians across. And in fact, um, it was very encouraging because last year, uh, end of last year, we actually host a little competition, kind of like a Turing test for uh, doctors uh, in some sense. We actually had a blind test whereby we had our AI ASPOP doctor completely because we're, we're now able to read natural language and be able to answer in natural language. And then we had judges judge between our machine and six cardiologists from top tier hospitals in Beijing. It was a really interesting test. And we won, the machine was 97.7 versus 93.6 for the specialists. With the exception of one out of six cardiologists who were who score marginally higher than our machine, all the rest were just less, right? And when we ask the judges, right, because they don't know the answer script, who's the machine or who is the person, the actual specialist, you know, and they said that look, it, it's very clear that you know different cardiologists they all have their kind of weak spots. Some of them may not ask as full questions to get actually the full symptoms, right? They may not also prescribe a more comprehensive area, they use usually what they're more familiar with, whereas a machine, they don't forget. I mean, the, the tons of medical, 37 million medical literature they have read and stuff, right? They're much more comprehensive and thorough in that sense. So we're not, I'm not saying that we should, the machine should replace it, but we push the smart healthcare more in terms of, look, because the offline will always still be there. 
we believe perhaps 20 25% could be online, or even part of it can be online, but then the bulk is still going to be offline. You still need to solve the offline problem, right? And we believe that technology can be used to empower the, these limited professionals, improve their quality much better. So, Shrey, Dr. Varana, we just heard that machines are better than, than doctors. Are you worried? <laughs> Not at all. I'm incredibly excited, I must say. And this is a conversation I've had for the last few years. And the reason I say that is because I think the question, Oliver, is a good one, which is, are clinicians worried? I think many of them are because by virtue of the, the environment they work in, it's a very conservative culture. But I think therein lies the opportunity because I think exactly as Jessica described it and Axel and I, this is something that could be incredibly complementary to improving clinical outcomes, improving quality, and as Jessica described, you know, training, because you can even see tenure-based differences with the ability to bring in, you know, these, let me call them tools to supplement, clinicians will be very effective. I think there will be certain environments, if you look at the latest publication, it was about three or four weeks ago from the WHO on TV screening, where they've now formally introduced an AI tool for chest X-ray to say that could be your first line screen. So I think this is a very natural space for in countries where we don't have access to fundamentally leapfrog the outcomes for patients and entire communities. And I think in many parts of the world where we have phenomenal clinicians, this is a way that could be supplementary to them. I think it's a very fear-based and understandable reaction where doctors get nervous. And for me, my concern is actually the regulators because it's actually less the colleges and the clinician bodies. It's if the regulators have the courage in each of these countries to see how this could improve access to better quality care, we could see this move quite significantly. I think in most of the countries we're talking about, that's been the challenge. I think we all naturally covered the areas we, we work in and we're excited about. But if I step back from us on the, the podcast, mental health is going to be one of those areas that we're going to see fundamental improvement on because specifically of people's ability to access care through their cell phone or through a digital environment. And that for me personally, as a doctor, I'm, I'm so excited about because I think it's one of the unspoken challenges and it affects everybody. And this is one of those places where we should all be pushing ahead because we could make such a phenomenal difference. So listen, I must say, this has been a fascinating conversation. There's so many more topics that we could explore. I leave uh, this conversation feeling inspired about and hopeful about the future of healthcare as a patient, to be honest. Listen, to round us out, I would love to hear from you. We are in the year of uh, the pandemic 2021. What is your prediction for the rest of, uh, of this year? Who wants to go first? Axel. I'm an optimist by nature. And I would argue that we will see three things. We will see, obviously, overcoming of the pandemic and hopefully latest in, in Q3. I think secondly, we will see a surge in innovation in medtech and in pharma given all the, the new pools of, of innovation that we have tapped into and we will see speed of coming into market. And I think lastly, we will see just a surge in continuous investment into, into health tech, into digital tech that is just going to continue what we have seen um, already last year, where 44% of all investments have gone into Asia's digital health tech from VC funds. So um, I'm just optimistic that we're going to see healthcare moving faster than in the last 150 years. Jessica. 
I think lots of people predict about, I think, direct impact and the speed of recovery and, and, and all sorts across the region. I, I'll leave that to other speculators. I think much more important is about what the lasting impact is. I think, um, you know, having been in Asia region when there was SARS in 2003, and, you know, you see that actually these days, countries like China, Singapore, et cetera, which I'm more familiar with, actually were a lot more prepared. Actually, some from the experience from SARS, right? Uh, you see actually some of the clinics, hospitals, they actually have special quarantine area. And I think this pandemic, hopefully one good thing that will come out of it is how the attitudes from what Sri was talking about, the government, the regulators, the healthcare, the hospitals and the healthcare professionals, you know, as well as the consumers on how they change their perception and their behavior, right? I mean, from the regulators standpoint, they become a lot more open, right? So they open now internet hospitals, you know, from a few, now just a few hundred of them suddenly, right? And hopefully that trend will continue, right? To encourage more. And from the healthcare professional hospitals, you find that having gone through last year, which is such a challenging year, how do you actually be much more prepared in such incidences? I think hopefully that these will actually stay, not just in procedures, but also in equipment and others. And then from consumer standpoint, you find actually it was a, a huge uh, you know, uplift because a lot of people, they just go to the hospitals, take half a day you know, in China you know, because you know, they wanted for flu or something. Suddenly everything actually can be done online because they don't want to go to the hospitals for risk of infection and stuff. And it changes the consumer. You, you know, hopefully this would be like what five years ago, what was kind of right hailing or what was like food delivery whereby people you know, would rather go physically instead of online. And then perhaps now it has changed a view of what it means. So we're actually doing like corporates now also saying instead of having physical, let's provide online healthcare for employees, right? So hopefully these three changes uh, will last. Shrey, you have the final word, your prediction for 2021. My prediction is going to be that digital platforms and telemedicine type solutions will finally come to the fore, which they should have done many years ago. The second is the world finally learned to wash its hands, which is a good thing. And I can only hope that the rate at which this virus evolves and the various strains we have, that the pharma companies and biotech companies can keep up in terms of the rate at which they can evolve the vaccine, because that's probably the most critical thing for us to get to whatever's next. Thank you. Listen, all three of you, a huge thank you for joining uh, this uh, podcast. You've been uh, a wonderful group of, uh, of leaders and love to hear your, uh, your perspectives. And to all the listeners, I hope you had a, uh, a wonderful time listening into these perspectives and have a great remaining day. Take care, everyone. You have been listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey & Company. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com slash Future of Asia or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook.